And as you turn to Revelation 4, we'll begin by simply reading this incredible chapter. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, and who is, and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne to him who lives forever and ever the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you our lord and our god to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created today we come uh, and begin to look at a, in a little more detail about this incredible heavenly scene that John is invited to participate in. And it is wise if we do not just take these two chapters, or in this case just chapter 4, and try to isolate it and look at it in isolation to the rest of the letter. Remember... The book of Revelation is a single letter. It is a letter that was addressed to seven churches. You see that way back in the first couple of verses of the letter. That this was given to John to communicate to, the se- to seven churches in Asia. And I also believe to all of the churches of all time, including us. Now, these seven churches that we, we see in greater detail in chapters Two and three, they were. We see Jesus walking amongst his churches. We see that God, Jesus is intimately involved with his churches, with his people, that he's not some absentee uh, owner. That is, he did not ascend into heaven and go away and now has no involvement with his people, but rather Jesus is the one who walks amongst the lampstand, he walks amongst his churches, he is involved with his churches, he is concerned with his people, he is concerned with their suffering, he is concerned when they go astray in, in their beliefs, he is concerned when they go astray in their morality, and he is calling them back. And the churches that we see in chapters 2 and 3 are 
being encouraged and admonished because they are suffering at the hands of those who um, would deny them their freedom to worship. They are being denied the ability to do business. In other words, if you do not worship the false gods of the culture, that you, they were being restricted from buying and selling and having jobs and participating in civic life. Hence, many of them were poor. Many of them were facing compromising, compromise with false teaching. Churches in Genesis or in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are not too far removed from churches in our day across the world and perhaps even churches in our community. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how do the people of God live in this culture and maintain a faithfulness to the word of God? How do we live in a culture that seeks to squelch the voice of God that is coming through the church of God. How do we live in a culture that would seek to silence the gospel that saves from coming forth from the church, which is the bride of Christ? How do we do that? How do we live in a way that it's so it's just easier to give in? It's just easier to say, you know what, I give up. Really, why bother fighting? I was reading in Hebrews chapter 11 this week, and I was amazed at the faithfulness of individuals who are mentioned there. It talks about how women received back their children from the dead. And it talks about how some would not deny, deny the Lord even though they were tortured beyond belief. And that they were looking at for something greater, something better, something that, that made all the beauty and the glory of this world pale. They were seeing, they were looking to Christ. They were looking for a city that was greater than the city that they lived in. Moses, how did he overcome the, the temptation to join into the culture of Egypt? He was looking for a city that was greater than even the the beauty and the glories of Egypt. And so we see in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus encouraging his churches. And then we come to chapters 4 and 5, where it is a vision of the glory of God, which I believe is the antidote to to struggling believers. If you are wrestling with staying firm and staying, keeping hold of the things of God, I believe that the place we begin is to have a clear vision of who God truly is. And as we continue on in chapter 6 through 20, we are going to see... We are going to see some frightening scenes. We are going to see a beast. We are going to see a false prophet. We are going to see a dragon, which is the serpent of old. And there are believers who are going to be tempted. Who do we follow, the lamb that was slain, or do we follow the beast? 
Because that by following the beast, we can have everything we need. We will have food, we will have supplies, we will have jobs, we will have the things that we need. We will have the applause of the world, we will have the acceptance of, a, of our society. Or do we follow the Lamb and suffer the scoffing shame that will come with it? If we are to follow the Lamb, how can we stay faithful? This is why chapters 4 and 5 are where they are. They are placed strategically between the struggling churches of 2 and 3 and, and the people of God who will be tempted to follow the beast. And if we are to remedy and have, a, have strength to follow the Lamb, we are going to have to have a vision of a God who is greater than this world. So will we worship the beast or will we worship the lamb? The other issue is this. Today we walk by faith and not by sight. So we need a reminder of how things really are. Remember the book of Revelation. Much of the book of Revelation is describing for us the way things really are. We look out in this world, we turn on the TV, we flip through magazines, we go to, we go to our jobs, and things are presented to us one way. But we need to remember that the way things are presented to us in our society is not always the way things really are. And it is only when we dig down and look into the Word of God that we begin to see the way things really are. And Revelation clearly points to us, points for us the way things truly are. We think that perhaps Supreme Courts are in charge. We think that perhaps governments are in charge. Perhaps, the, perhaps the, our brothers and sisters in Russia think that, that uh, Vladimir Putin is in charge. But when we look at the way things really are, we see thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and the book of Revelation shows us the way things really are in chapters 4 and 5 and today chapters 4 will show us who truly rules and who is on the throne and who causes all things to be and creates the earth for him, by him and for him and so when we begin to see the realities of heaven hopefully hopefully it will produce worship. So the structure today, uh, the way this chapter is outlined is very simple. I like it when chapters outline themselves really nicely and cleanly and simply. But I don't have to go looking for an outline that is just right there. It makes my job so much easier. And so chapter 4 is outlined very easily. First part is we see the one seated on the throne, and the second part is the worship of the one who is seated on the throne. So today, let's begin by looking at the one who is seated on the throne. And John is told, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. John is summoned by the voice that he heard at the beginning. And if you look, that is the voice of Christ. Come up here and I'm going to show you things. Things which must take place. 
This has an echo back to Ezekiel who also was summoned. And so we see John being given the position of a prophet who will receive the word of God and then bring it back to the people of God for their edification and for their exhortation and for their admonishment that they might know what God is speaking to his people. Come up here and I'm going to show you what must take place. Every single one of us want to know the future. To some degree. Would you like to know what the stock market is going to do tomorrow? Or maybe not just the stock market, but your individual stocks. Or maybe not your individual stocks, but an individual industry. That you could know tomorrow what it's going to do. Would you like to know that? I'd like to know that. Real insider information. Do I take my money out or put my money in? We want to know... Are my kids going to be okay when I send them off to college? Are my grandkids going to be okay when they take that new job position? We all want to know what the future holds. And John is told, come up here and I'm going to show you what must take place. But first, before John is given a vision of what will take place, he sees the one in whom the future dwells. John, before given... uh, a vision of the future. John sees the one who holds the future. As we consider the book of Revelation, I am going to continually remind you that the book of Revelation is all about God and the Lamb seated on the throne. I know that there are futuristic aspects to the book of Revelation. And I know that... It is incumbent upon us as children of God who love God's word to seek to understand what all of the symbols and all of the the metaphors and what all of the things that are included in the book of Revelation that capture our attention, what they all mean. But if all we do is figure out the symbols and the metaphors and the, the echoes and the... Uh, the shadows, and we get them all figured out, but we have missed the one who is seated on the throne. We have done a disservice to the Word of God, and we do not understand the book of Revelation. On the other hand, if we see the one who is seated on the throne, and we grasp a vision of him, and we miss a few of the metaphors, I'll tell you right now, we have grasped the book of Revelation. Now, our job, I hope, is to get them all, and to get them all perfect, perfectly aligned so we see the one seated on the throne, and we understand the metaphors that were given to us, and we see the symbolism that was given to us so that we might know who God is and what He plans to do for His people and in His people and through His people. I want to get it all. But as we're getting it all, we need to see the one seated on the throne. And so, John is going to be given a vision of the last days from a perspective of heaven. His perspective will not be from the headlines of the day. His perspective will not be from his own imaginings. His perspective will not be from what other experts say. His perspective of what is going to take place will be from the God who has ordained the things that are going to take place. First-hand information. 
And so as a prophet, he will communicate this message to his people. We have in our hands right now the message that God spoke to his, his prophet, John, about what will take place. And before we take a look at those things, let's take a look at the one seated on the throne, because this is what captured John's attention. You will notice chapters 4 and 5 come before chapters 6 through 20. So before he gets into all of the happenings of 6 through 20, he is captivated by this incredible scene in heaven. And John sees a throne. But before he even begins to describe the throne, John is drawn to the one who is seated upon the throne. And we will notice that John does not even bother or I think is unable to describe the one seated on the throne. He describes him in very interesting terms. I want you to think about the most beautiful thing you have ever seen in your whole life. Perhaps your grandchild or your child taking their first breath and those beautiful eyes looking up at you. Perhaps it was a sunset. Perhaps it was your wife the day you married her. I want you to think of the most glorious, beautiful thing. I'm going to describe to you one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's actually the second most beautiful thing I've ever seen. My wife is number one, but you've seen her. So I don't need to describe that. We were hiking in Denali National Park a number of years ago. And uh, it was a glorious day. We were out looking for bears, grizzly bears. We didn't see any that day, but eventually we found bears to marvel at. Beautiful creatures. But as we were hiking, the, the, the day was beautiful. It was sun shut. The sun was shining. We actually, McKinley, Mount McKinley was actually completely visible, a rarity. Usually obscured by clouds, but there it was, and it's beautiful, glorious, kind of off to my right, and the the tundra was just aflame with color, greens and blues and reds and oranges. I mean, it almost had to put sunglasses on because of the the brightness that was being reflected by the sun. The mountains rose, and the tundra went up, and it was green on the mountainsides, and then well, as it got above tree line, there was brown, and the green and the brown just formed this incredible contrast, and then that contrast with the bright blue sky and this gleaming sun is coming down and just highlighting everything, and I thought that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And then the Lord said, and Jesus shines brighter. Jesus is fairer. I remember the song. Jesus is more pure than all of nature can boast. And I thought I should worship. I shared that story with you for two, th- two reasons. Number one, for the purpose of saying that whatever the most beautiful thing you can think of, Jesus is, gra- is even, even greater beauty, of greater Brilliance, But I shared that with you for another reason. Because what I shared with you was just, I, I am certain, I know for a fact 
that my description of this beautiful site in Denali National Park did not even come close to, just, to what I actually saw. Perhaps if I were a better wordsmith or a poet, I could, I could draw you even closer to what I actually saw. But what I actually saw cannot be conveyed with words. Perhaps I could have taken a picture. But even a great photographer cannot capture the brilliance and the beauty of what I actually saw. I cannot convey in words. I can convey in words something. But what I am conveying is not it pales in comparison of what I actually saw. John is in heaven. Describe heaven. Whatever words he's got, they are falling far short of what John is, is, is actually seeing. So go ahead when you imagine and picture the beauty and the glory of God. Let your imagination go. I guarantee you, it will fall far short of the reality. And the day that you see him face to face, you'll say, my, my imagination was so limited. And John sees God on the throne. And he sees him as, not, as, not by providing some physical description. This would have been forbidden by scripture. We never see God... Described physically. When the children of Israel left Egypt and they came and they were going across the promised land, they were not led by a lion, they were not led by a lamb, they were not led by a man, they were not led by, by they were led by a cloud and a pillar of fire. The greatness and the beauty of God will exceed our, our imagination. God is spirit and God is a consuming fire. And God is brighter and fairer and more beautiful than you could ever dream. Dream as big as you can dream and your dream will pale in comparison. And here is John now trying to describe for us the beauties of the realities. Come up here and I'm going to show you stuff. And I see a throne and one seated on the throne. I'm going to describe it, but I just want you to know it is nothing compared to the reality. Oh, I pray that we would long to see that reality. He described the one seated on the throne with precious stones. The first one, a, a jasper stone. Some people have related this to a diamond. You have to remember in the days in which John wrote, they did not have the ability to cut diamonds like we have today to, to refract and reflect the light. And they were pretty much opaque um, in color. Perhaps John, though, is seeing a diamond cut like we're accustomed to reflecting and refracting light and and it's brilliance, and he doesn't know how to describe it. The best thing I got is a jasper stone. That's the best I got. I've never seen what I'm seeing. And sardius in appearance, I believe those were generally red. Perhaps these stones 
um, reminded John of the New Jerusalem that we're going to see coming down in, Je- in Revelation chapter 21. We'll see that these were some of the stones that were founded upon the New Jerusalem. Perhaps they, they reflect the high priest breastplate that had these stones also on them. But all John can do to describe the Lord is with brilliance. He also sees a rainbow before the throne. I just think this is a reminder of covenant promise. That all around God is his promise. God never forgets his promise. Not that he somehow lapses in memory. And he needs a rainbow around him just to oh, I forgot there was a rainbow. I forgot about that. But for John's sake, and because the temple in heaven is the original temple, and whatever we have here on earth is just a reflection, it's simply a copy. So God is portrayed as beautiful. God is portrayed as faithful. God is portrayed as being um, beholden or faithful to his promises. Oh, what the contrast this is going to be as we begin to look at the ugliness of the beast and the ugliness of the works of the beast and all that he entails. We're going to see that in great contrast to the beauty of the risen Lord, of, of the one who sits upon the throne. And then we see these 24 attendants, or these 24 um, elders on 24 thrones. And, you know, there's been a, a whole lot of ideas put forth as to what are these, who are these 24 elders. But I am reminded of 1 Kings chapter 22, 19, where Micaiah the prophet says, Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And so Micaiah saw the throne of God and on his right and on his left all around him were heavenly attendants. Who these attendants are, people put forth perhaps David's section, the, the priests in 24 sections. Perhaps it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Some would say that these 24 elders are actually um, human beings who have conquered and are seated around God. I think that they're angelic beings, and I gave you a number of references why I think they're angelic beings. God is surrounded by the, uh, all of these hosts all about him. And from the throne comes lightning and peals of thunder. These are very typical sightings as those who see God, the presence of God is often related to us as lightning and peals of thunder. When Moses went up on the Mount Sinai, there was lightning and peals of thunder. It was a fearful and awesome thing. It was such that all of the people of Israel said, we're not going up there. 
God came down in the cloud and lightning and peals of thunder and Moses says, uh, it's time to go up there. You go up there, Moses. God says, Moses, only you get to come up. If the other people try to come up, tell them they can't come. So Moses says, well, I'm going to go up. You can't come. Okay. <laughs> That's good with us. You go up. Seven lamps and seven spirits, as we've already discussed back in chapter chapter one, is a, ref, is, a, is a reference to the Spirit of God. You should note that here on the throne in chapters four and five, we, we have Trinitarian concepts and Trinitarian images. We have God who's seated upon the throne. We see the Holy Spirit, and we see in chapter five a man of God who's slain seated upon the throne. So who's seated upon the throne? We see our triune God. There is this sea of glass. Again, many ideas have been put forth of what this sea of glass might be. A couple of ideas that I think have merit. One would be... uh, an image of the bronze sea that was part of the tabernacle early on. There was a, a labor where that, that talked about purity. I like that idea because I do believe that the heavenly tabernacle that John is getting a glimpse of is the prototype. It is the original. Hebrews tells us the temple and the tabernacle that were here on earth are a copy of what was original in heaven. So I like that idea. Others have put forth the idea that um, in the sea of glass is tranquil and in Jewish thought and in Jewish thinking and also in the book of Revelation uh, the sea is a place of chaos and turmoil in the book of Revelation the sea is a place that, that is the, the abode of the beast the, the, the beast comes up out of the sea and so um, it's a place of chaotic turmoil and evil but here is a tranquil sea representing that God um, calms even the place of evil has no, there is no ripple in God's presence. I think both of those are, are good. I won't die on either of those hills. But I do like this idea that there is rest and authority. This is why when John sees, and we'll talk about this when we get there, why in this new heaven and new earth there is no sea. I don't believe for a moment there is going to be no sea. I think it's symbolic. Why? Because the beast comes out of the sea. It's a place of chaos. When God recreates the earth, the heaven and the earth, the new heaven and new earth, it's going to be, a resurre- it's going to be like a resurrected heaven and earth. I think there's not going to be oceans. I just don't think it fits the rest of Scripture. And then we see these living creatures, strange creatures. One looks like a lion, one looks like an ox, one looks like a man, and one looks like a a soaring eagle. Of course, echoes to the book of Ezekiel, definitely here. People have wondered, what 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 do all these mean? Again, I'm going to put forth my guess somewhat educated guess 
that we see the number four often has to do with the created order. We see the, the four corners of the earth and the four winds, and we see that four oftentimes has to do with created order. And here we see um, a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle representing um, the created order. I think what we're seeing here is in the middle of all of this we see a throne and we see one seated on the throne and we see heavenly attendants surrounding the throne. This is important. This would be like if you were going to visit a, a royal di- a king in ancient times, you would have to go through layers of individuals before you get to the throne. Likewise, today, if you were to see a dignitary, if you were going to see the president, you probably just would not walk into the Oval Office. You would have to go through layer and layer and layer of attendance. There might be a a person who first kind of gets your basic information. Once that's done, you go to another layer and they'll kind of do some stuff. Eventually you're going to get to Secret Service and eventually perhaps walk into the Oval Office. And here around our God and King are these layers not that God needs to be protected to show his holiness but here's the beauty of all of this the book of Hebrews tells us that you and I can come boldly before the throne of God again that does not mean arrogantly it means you can walk in and these heavenly beings part ways and you can walk to the throne of God sit down at the very feet of our God and make your request known to him. Whatever these four creatures are, they will not hinder you. Whatever these 24 elders may be, they will not stop you. The throne of God is open to those who call upon his name. And in fact, the one who is seated on the throne bids you come. Make your request known to me. Bottom line is this, folks. Heaven does not look to be boring. There's all kinds of things going on. There is... There's really strange beings. God's throne room is filled with glory. God's throne room is filled with activity. God's throne is surrounded by attendants. And you and I can come boldly before that throne and present our requests and make our desires known to the king who sits upon that throne. So now we have seen the one who is seated on the throne. We cannot ignore the worship that is going on before this throne. This worship is prompted by these four living creatures. They worship God because they see God for who he truly is. They know all the facts about God. When you know God as he truly is, I think the only response, if not the appropriate response, the only response is to fall down and worship. I think perhaps we don't worship as we ought because we don't have a great vision of who God is. Perhaps we've adopted the the ideas of what people say God is. And he's some old man with a beard sitting up there keeping track of stuff. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. They worship God for who truly is. And when we have a glimpse and a vision of who God really is, the only appropriate response is to worship. I'll give you an example. Simone and I, this week, I shared this with a few of you. 
This week, we had a very hectic week. We had to be in the valley all week. But while we were there, um, it also was providential that we were able to listen to three lectures given by a man by the name of N.T. Wright. If you are not in academic circles, you are probably not familiar with Dr. Wright. If you are in our academic circles, you are in awe right now that we saw three lectures by him. <laughs> He's never been to Arizona before. He might be considered perhaps the top New Testament scholar in the world today. Um, if not, top five for sure. I say this um, not because he talked in when he speaks he speaks in a very accessible if you read his books his books are very accessible you and I can understand them but as he was speaking at a chapel service on Tuesday morning at Arizona Christian University he began to unpack the beauty and the glory of God's word in ways that I have never seen. He was connecting John 20 with creation. It was just unbelievable talking about the resurrection of Christ and the way he was integrating scriptures and showing. I just saw the beauty of God's word in such a wonderful way that I didn't exalt God's word because then I began to see the beauty and the glory of the God who wrote this word and put it all together. And this man just bringing it out in such beautiful and clear ways, I felt it's time to fall down and worship. Not Dr. Wright. Not even the Bible that he is exalting, but the God that he is describing who wrote this book and put the intricacies and its beautiful structure together in such a way that who can do anything but fall on their face and worship? I was like going, oh my goodness, I have never seen anything like this. I, God was seen in a whole new way, in a beautiful way. I would adjure you, I would exhort you, read God's word, know God's word. Perhaps we will never have opportunity to hear God's word from such a, a learned man, but he's just a learned man. And he's just a man. He will tell you the same thing. But God's word is beautiful. Say that there are many people who come to me and say, I don't understand it. I'll tell you this, start reading it. Yeah. You have the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that God put a Spirit in you so that you can know His Word. I'm not saying that you're going to understand it in a way that Dr. Wright understands it, but I'm going to say you can understand it in a way that will cause you to love God beyond your love for Him now. In a way that will cause you to fall on your face and worship Begin with the book of James. It's an easy one. Begin by reading the Gospels. Read the book of Mark. You can read it. You can understand it. I promise you, God has given... If you don't understand it, keep reading it. Don't worry about figuring out every single detail. Dr. Wright doesn't understand every single detail. There were questions and answers. And, and he said, I don't know. <laughs> I'm telling you, probably the greatest New Testament scholar of our day. So I don't know. I really don't know. That made me feel really good. <laughs> but that should not stop you from opening up God's Word and reading it. 
Get what you can. And I promise you, I promise you, God will be faithful to reveal His beauty and His glory and His Word. He already told us that He gave us His Spirit. So around the throne is worship because they see God for who He truly is. They know God. What's keeping you and I from worshiping God? Perhaps we have a wrong view of who He is. What's keeping you from worship? Is there sin? Is there rebellion? Because see, when we sin, we're not seeing God for who He truly is. We're seeing that sin, that temptation, that desire as being of greater value than the one who's seated upon the throne. I will partake of that thing or that thought or that action or that sight. I will partake of that because I think at this point it has greater value than the one seated upon the throne. Oh, folks, we need a view of the one who's seated upon the throne. Do we deny Christ when people give us an opportunity to share with them about the beauty of salvation and the gospel that saves? Do we shrink away because we think we might be ridiculed? Because when, so, when we do that, we are saying that... The value of not being ridiculed is greater than the value of God. I'm not sitting here trying to lay a guilt burden on anybody. I'm simply saying we need to have a view of God that is exalted. This is what John is saying. Come up here and I'm going to show you stuff. But before he gets to see the stuff, he is enamored by the throne. You'll notice how they worship they do, do not cease to say day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. And when the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him and they begin to praise. Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and because Your will they existed and were created. Holy, 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 unceasing praise of the power and the glory and the sovereign might of the Creator God who was and is and is to come. He is eternal. Can anything defeat or thwart the purposes of the God who was and is to come? No. God is holy. He is utterly unstained by sin. He may be offended by sin, but he is completely separated from him. We might ask, how can an individual approach such a God as this? Well, we'll talk about that next week. Chapter 5, when we see the Lamb who was slain. Because right now we're seeing this holy God. Who can approach such a God like that? The answer will be provided next week. Worship is serious business, folks. It is not to be taken lightly. Worship is not for the purpose of entertainment. I don't know that we here at the church on Randall Place have worship perfect. But we have a reason why we do what we do. We begin, generally we begin with a call to worship and a scripture reading. We, there is a call. Come! Gather around. It is time. Ho! Oh, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters and drink. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. It's an invitation. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our services begin with an invitation. Come. Now is the time to worship. We have 
times where either through song or through scripture that we exalt the Lord and we sing or talk about His glory and His grace and we give thanks. We then move into a place where we are talking about perhaps a time of confession of sin. And where we repent of our sin and we are assured that we are forgiven of sin. And then we have a time of talking about the beauty and the glories of the work of Christ. And then a message and then we go out with rejoicing. None of that is an accident. I don't know if we have it 100% right. But we take very seriously not just the songs we sing and the prayers we pray and the sermons that we preach. But there is a structure. Because worship is serious business. It is not haphazard. And our goal is not to entertain you. I don't mean by that that you should be bored. But our goal is not entertainment. And believe it or not, our goal is not evangelism. My primary goal is not to see the lost saved in the church service. I know that may shock some of you. The reason being is because if that's my goal, here, look at my goal is horizontal, isn't it? That is not the goal of worship. The goal of worship is vertical. I pray that people get saved. There may be a gospel invitation. There may be an opportunity for me to say, you need to repent of your sin, and if you have, let's, let's talk, and talk about what it means to live. But our purpose really is to glorify God. I think when God is honored and glorified, and people see God for who He truly is, they too will have... God will soften their heart and they will fall on their face and say, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. That's evangelism. I'm not saying there's no place for evangelism. I'm saying our primary purpose when we gather together is to honor and glorify the God who is seated upon the throne. When you go out these doors, you better be evangelizing. You better be preaching the gospel. That's the mission field. Today we gather together to worship. And if you have not experience the God who is seated upon the throne. I would like to give you that opportunity today. I would like to introduce you to him. If your heart is being convicted, if you are saying, gee, I thought I, I followed this God. I followed far short. I think I'd like to know who this God is. That's God working upon your heart. And we would love to spend some time talking about that God to you and share with you the gospel that saves. And so when we worship and when we sing our praises, you are adding your voices to the praises that are going on in heaven. The heavenly creatures fall down and worship. And when we lift our voices in worship, our voices are added to the heavenly voices. And their voices are added to ours. And all of creation praises and gives glory and honor to the one seated upon the throne. Because the one seated upon the throne is our audience. So I'll conclude with this. Chapters 4 and 5, and for today, chapter 4 is a comfort. Provides a comfort to the seven churches to which this letter is written. It provides a comfort to you and to me. See, God's will will be done. God's will is being done in heaven. And we pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, seeing God accurately will serve as an encouragement to you to persevere. And when trials come, look to the God who is seated upon the throne. When temptations come, there is a God who is seated upon the throne for whom you were created, by whom you were created, for whom you were created. 
Give glory and honor to him. And finally, I'll conclude with this. In this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's stand and pray.